He's fine in them, aren't it? Yeah, sad, isn't it? Once they were all big stars, household names. Now they're forced to scrape a living as best they can. Humiliated, forgotten, cast aside like a half-chewed liberty bodice. <laughs> we'll seek them out. Wherever they are, we'll find them and put them back at the top where they belong. Hang on, boys! We're coming for you! We remember! We won't let you down! Hello, I'm Andrew. Hello, I'm Lisa. Welcome to episode 48 of... Round the Archives. Lisa, do you have a correction? I do have a correction. I must apologise profusely. Yeah. But um, in the Keeping Up Appearances article, yeah. I said that Queen Henrietta Maria was married to Charles II. Right. This, in fact, is incorrect. She was Charles II's mother. She was married to Charles I. Uh, you were one Charles I out. Were one, I was one Charles out. At least you weren't two Charleses out. So. <laughs> well, there hasn't been another Charles, so... <laughs> well. Give it, give it, give it a while. Well, maybe, but yes. <laughs> but we've been busier than ever, haven't we? We have. Um, we have. If you've managed to keep up with all the things that you've released since the last time, you're a better person than I am. Yeah, we've been doing a podcast a week and making appearances on other shows. Yes. So, don't forget to catch up on the Round the Archives in Conversation releases. Mm-hmm. We're also on the Shy Life podcast yes. several times, mm-hmm. and we're also on the Exton Moss experiment. We are. We're uh, sorry. Why are we sorry? Because we're everywhere at the moment. Well, we're we're just spreading ourselves far and wide, yes. aren't we? But now we're going to kick off with a a tribute to Timbrook Taylor by mm-hmm. asking whether the goodies rule okay. Goodies, goody, goody, yum, yum. <laughs> Good afternoon, Lisa. Good afternoon, Andrew. I have in my hand a piece of paper. Do you? From 1977. Okay. It says, You are invited to our Jubilee celebrations, barbecue and dance at the St. Giles Estate Club on Monday the 6th of June, 1977, 9pm to 1am, licensed bar. Wow. Adults £1, children 50p. Okay. Yeah. I wonder why it's got adults crossed out. That was, was that your ticket? That, well, that was my ticket, because I was a child. So I was only worth 50p. (laughs) But this was the Queen's Silver Jubilee celebrations we did in our village. Mm -hmm. And I remember I got cross, well, or at least a bit narky, that I had to go to a fancy dress party dressed as a robot on Tuesday the 7th of June. Okay. And why did I get cross? Because I was going to miss goodies rule okay. Okay. Which... Apparently was always on the telly yeah. in the in the mid seventies. <laughs> yes. As the first transmission for it is the twenty first of December 
1975 mm-hmm. on BBC Two at 25 past seven. Yeah. And it says, Goodies triumph in the world of pop. Help put Britain back on top. They sink a queen and float the pound, then battle with a famous hound. Okay. And then there was a repeat mm-hmm. on the 25th of February, yeah. 1976, yeah. where it doubled its audience, basically, getting about mm-hmm. 13 million. Wow. And then the showing on the 7th of June, 1977, was mm-hmm. at uh, 4.25 on BBC2, yeah. mm-hmm. when I was dressed as a robot. Okay. I came second, though, so that oh, was all that's right. that's all right, then. Yeah. yeah. But I do love Goodies Rural OK. Yeah. Of the specials, mm-hmm. I think it's my favourite. Okay. Um, I do prefer it to Goodies and the Beanstalk. Yeah. There's just a bit more going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so how many times have you seen it? Only once or twice, uh, possibly? About twice, I think, yes. Mm. Yeah. But the thing about the Goodies, and mm. I've been thinking about this, is, is that the three lead characters, mm. and Nick pointed this out recently, Yes. Um, that... He always regarded me very much as Graham Garden. Okay. And uh, himself as Tim Brooke Taylor. Okay. I don't remember him making too many patriotic speeches. No. But yeah, I always identified with Graham. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in Last of the Summer Wine, I always identified with Clegg. Okay. Who I sort of see as being Tim in Last of the Summer Wine. If if, if Compo is is Bill Mm. and um, Foggy or Blamire or Seymour, that was it. (laughs) Oh, God, I'm going to get letters from Bob Fisher now. Um, being the sort of Graham sort of... Okay. Especially with Seymour, because he was an inventor, yes. you see. Okay. Um, but let's go through what happens in this one. Mm-hmm. And I said, there is, there is a lot to note down. Yes. Um, we made notes. Yeah, it, made it's notes. got speci- a special title sequence. Yeah. Uh, stuff in that's not in the actual episode. There, there's a few bits that aren't... Yeah, yeah it sort of yeah. takes and things like that. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's the only episode or story for which all the clips are actually from the filming of that production okay uh we we should say of course the giant Dougal immediately starts appearing in the title sequence after this because yes. it's such a such an image that people yes. remember but we start off in 1961 with pathé news <laughs> and barry cryer doing a voiceover yes and we, we see where cliff richard and Scylla black and pete murray and the bay city rollers who weren't babies in 1961? <laughs> Were they not? <laughs> well, no, considering they're, they're sort of early to mid-70s. Yeah. And they're obviously in their 20s by then. Yeah, all right. Well, they, they definitely weren't babies. It is a gag. Yes. But at, at the Cavern Club, we have the Bootles. Yes. Don't we? Mm. Who are our, our heroes mm-hmm. with, with sort of wigs and yes. things on. Bill's got a bit of a nose, hasn't he? Just, yes. Yeah. Yeah, strapped on nose. But, mm. but yeah, they're, they're, they're doing... Um, Doing their sort of best Beatles impression, yes. aren't they? How do you think they get away with it? It's, it's not bad. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's meant to be bad, yeah. but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good good impersonation. Because they're Don, Saul, George and Bingo, aren't yes. they? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the way, George is just a dummy. Yeah. Well, they didn't have enough people, did yeah, they? Yeah. So. Yeah, they're sort of booed off stage, basically, and the Beatles mm-hmm. come and yeah. pick up all their bits. Yeah. I love the way that all, all their songs are attributed to Graham Garden and Bill Oddie and Tim yeah. Brooke Taylor, if you look on the yes. on, on the sheets. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. So, cut to 1968, mm-hmm. when I was born, Yes, uh, where they're the confirmed bachelors. Mm-hmm. 1970, they're the extremes. Mm-hmm. And note, noting all these singing and dancing routines, how unhappy Graham is. Yes, he looks. He looks. He looks more unhappy in the extremes one because he's wearing a dress. Yeah. In the other ones, he, he just about pulls it off. I think. What the dress? No. 
1974, they're the three, and they don't even yeah. find out what they are before yeah. they're pelted. It's all sort of cabbages and things, mm-hmm. isn't it? And by 1975, the the goodies are on Skid Row. Mm-hmm. But it's probably the same cabbages as well. Yeah, it probably is. But I, I like I like the thing where sort of I think Bill says we're ahead of our time. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not appreciated at the moment. Yeah, and we're trying to do something new and original. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there's a bit of sort of foreshadowing there yeah. that. Um, sometimes the goodies were written off just as a kids show. There, mm-hmm. there is that thing, and, and when when you hear them in interviews, they will yeah. say about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, you know, they they have lasted. We we have yeah. got the DVD release, yeah. and we recently got the full interview disc, didn't we? Yes, which 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 was very interesting it to was. see. Yeah, um, yeah. I like the uh, the dig at um, John and Eric. Yes, from Python, who mm-hmm. are dressed up as Gumbies, as Gumbies going yeah. through bins, aren't they? Mm-hmm. But the theory is that people prefer cheap imitations to the real thing when it comes mm-hmm. to entertainment. Meaningless gimmicks. So Graham's got a big sack, hasn't he? Which yes. is full of of props, mm-hmm. including Donny Osmond's teeth, the Bay City Roller's trousers, mm-hmm. Elton John's glasses, Kojak's hair and the Womble's feet, and the yeah. Rubette's cap. Kojak's isn't it? hair? Yeah, Kojak's hair is a bald cap. Oh, right, yeah. yeah but Kojak. Bill does a... Yes. And um, Alvin Stardust. That's Graham, actually, does yes. a... Yeah, Alvin Stardust's glove. Yeah. So somebody gets to do some pointing. And Li- Lindsay DePaul's dress. Uh, dress as well. Yeah. I noticed that the dress changes because Tim's wearing it at first yeah. with the cap and then mm. later on, Graham's got it on on the, mm. on the drums, isn't he? Yeah. So they hold a concert mm. and the only people allowed in the audience are police. Yes. I like that. So they do wild thing, mm-hmm. and Tim's rather good at doing that, isn't yes. he? I think he enjoys enjoys that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the police end up storming the stage, yes. don't they? Um, then uh, I, I like the thing where the goodies are all in the top ten on top of the pot. Yes, it's just various different pictures, isn't yeah, it? Some of which are, are actually from their appearances on top of the yeah. pops yeah. and some are, 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 are staged. Um, mm. but basically, the goodies are raking it in. But Britain's sort of economy is in trouble, and the mm. the pound falls to a new low. <laughs> but on on the, on the good news, the goodies to get OBEs mm. at a royal garden party. Mm. Now we should say about Bill and his OBE. Yes. Uh, yes. Because at the audience thing where they they launched the DVD set, he was wearing his OBE, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah. And he said, "Well, what's the point of having it if you don't wear it?" Yeah. It doesn't actually look like the OBEs they get no. in the show, do well, they? Well, that's probably because when they did it, they didn't know what OBEs looked like. It was like. just big discs with OBE written yeah, on it. Yeah, because it's actually sort of, sort of cross, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. But it, it's raining, isn't it? And yes. it all ends up underwater yes. at, at Rice Lip Lido. Yes, which we've been to. Did we, yeah, we, we, did, when did we go there? Well, years ago. a few years ago now. It's when we, we visited um, Elaine and Keith and right. we, we went for lunch and then we had a walk around the grounds. Right. And uh, no, no bits of leftover goodies. No, pro- no OBEs in no. the in the bush or nothing. But Sheila Stiefel's doing the voice of the Queen. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, but the goodies are going to be nationalised. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, we should say about the the palace being underwater. There's a lovely yes. shot mm-hmm. where they've done a sort of composite shot of the, the palace in the distance, and mm-hmm. they're in a sort of rowing boat, aren't yeah. they? That, 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 that's very nice. But yeah, it's the goodies' duty to to cheer up everybody. In, mm-hmm. in the country. Uh, so they, they've got to bounce for Britain. And, they, and I love this sort of meaningless sort of, mm. you know, make, make people feel happy. Um, you got any comments on, on, the, on the bouncing segments? 
There is one bit. There is one bit. bit. Yeah. yeah, you wouldn't do now. But, What's uh, that? The lady. Uh, the lady's chest. <laughs> but yeah. yeah. But yeah, Michael Barrett is on Nationwide and yes. he's bouncing, isn't yes. he? Yeah. We've got to give points to him. Oh for, yeah. For being very game yes. to, to be silly. Being involved. But yeah, the trick is he does it absolutely straight, yes. doesn't he? He's, he's really yes. believing in it. So industry is a. Uh, is brought to a standstill and the PM gives up, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. He sort of jumps off a yeah. balcony or something. So we have election special introduced by Wogan. Yes. I like that. Yes, Terry Wogan. Terry nice. Wogan. Because yeah. uh, you've got the, the bouncing party and the, mm -hmm. the waltzing party mm -hmm. and uh, and the Max Walling party. Yes. <laughs> do you like do you like Max Wall? Um, You're not bothered, are No, you? not yeah. really. But yeah, there's also a party of dummies mm -hmm. who are the standing party. Yes. And uh, they soon up getting elected. Because mm -hmm. no, I, I think nobody sort of knows what their policies are, do no. they? It's sort of nothing, really. Yes. Yeah. So we cut to the town crier. Mm -hmm. Who's that? That's uh, Norman Mitchell. Yeah. Yeah. Who says basically there should be no larking about allowed. Yes. Um, no fun. It's an offence to enjoy yourselves. And uh, this will be seen over by the mirth inspectors and that's quite a nice scene where mm. they sort of gallop into the town yeah. square yeah that's, that's uh, yeah. very well done because yeah. so, it's it's sort of um i was sort of looking at the costumes and because one of them's got sort of like a big helmet on hasn't yeah it? But the other ones are quite roundheadish mm. and of course this is all this all sort of is very similar to uh, oliver cromwell and his banning anything that was vaguely yeah. good so Christmas and plays and sport. Well, that's the thing. Although this is a very silly plot, mm. um, it's still got connections to all sorts of things. Mm. You know, that, that's what I, I like spotting all the illusions mm. and, and things like that. So yeah, all pleasure and diversion is is banned, and there's, there's shots of like footballs and comics being burned mm. on pyres, isn't it? And basically, you've got to, got to keep Britain gloomy. Yes. But meanwhile, in Sherwood Forest. <laughs> The goodies as three Robin Hoods. Yes, all in Lincoln Green. Yeah. Green. Uh, present a show to an old couple who live at Dunchucklin. Mm. I wonder if it was called that before the mirth inspectors no, came into town. It probably wasn't. Mm. So we get a load of, of silly. It, it is basically like the good old days or, yeah. or wheel yeah. tappers at this yeah. point, as we get a load of slightly below par acts, don't we? Yes. As we get some rubbish acrobatics. Mm. Um, a barrel organ, some knife throwing, mm -hmm. uh, which sort of escalates with, yeah. with Bill like throwing spears and shooting machine guns yeah. and a bazooka. Um, there's a magic act where Tim mm -hmm. is is sawn in half, mm -hmm. um, and his feet end up on backwards. Yeah, they put they? his feet back on the wrong way, don't yeah. they? Yeah. You asked me about the music in that, yes. and we should mention Andrew Pixley's wonderful book, yes. which will give you every musical track mm -hmm. uh, but the one you were thinking of it's used in Captain Fantastic right. in Do Not Adjust Your Set so mm -hmm. yes you have heard it before yes I thought I had just yeah. couldn't work out where from but yeah the, 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 the lady is sort of really enjoying it isn't yeah. it and her husband's trying to shut her up in yeah. case they get into trouble yeah, in the end he sticks plaster, a plaster yeah. over her mouth and a bag on her head the one that really made me laugh is Graham doing the balloon <laughs> animals because <laughs> you've got all the silly noises yes. and, they, and they sort of fly off yeah uh, Bill has another go at wild thing, and then a policeman appears out of nowhere again. Mm. Doesn't he? And then they sort of stand on this rotating thing that goes yes. round, and there's sort of showgirls with them yeah. waving. I don't know where they come from. 
yeah, they've sort of dug a thing in the ground and covered yeah. it in grass. Yeah, like it's, it's a, rot- a turntable. A rotunda yeah. kind of thing, isn't it? They call oh, it in the theatre. Is that what it's called? It's what it's All called. Right. But yeah, prohibition is brought in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, we've got the hootleggers <laughs> who operate at Jokeezies and uh, presenting illegal entertainment. Mm-hmm. And this is after the St. Valentine's Day custard pie fight, isn't it? Yes. And that's one of those shots I could never work out in the title sequence where it comes from. All right. As they come on as like sort of gangsters. Yeah. And have got the custard pies in, in like the violin cases yes. and things like yeah. that. And so, yeah, if you're wondering where it comes from, it's, it's just a brief shot in this. Yes. In this episode. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they're, they're, they're looking for once famous entertainers. And there's a rumour that Eric and Ernie are in town. Yes. <laughs> But they want to put them back at the top where they belong because they've all had to take up sort of menial mm-hmm. sort of tasks, haven't they? Yes. Because yeah. you've got Tommy Cooper as a, as a traffic warden, but mm-hmm. he's still got, I like the fact he's still got his fez on. He's got his on. Fez on, yeah, yeah. 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 You've got Doddy as a, a, sweet, a, a sweet sweeper. A road sweeper. And I said a sweet sweeper. Or a street sweeper. <laughs> yeah, he, does, he, he doesn't go around s- <laughs> sweeping sweets. Well, imagine. Unless they got dusty. Yeah. And I love the fact that Tony Blackburn is utterly ignored. Yes, they they pull up and drive off again, don't they? Because <laughs> Tony Blackburn turns up in the audience for the thing. And he does. He, and you have to admire the fact that he's he's quite happy to have the uh, Mickey yeah. taken out of him. Yeah. But uh, although the government now topples, mm. everybody's forgotten their act. Yes. So you've got you've got all these people that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, some of them are shot from behind, but, yes. but you do get Eddie wearing yeah. Patrick Moore and Sue Lawley yes. for real, don't mm-hmm. you? But I love the way that sort of Tommy Cooper's going, just like that, just like that. <laughs> <laughs> ha, ha, ha. <laughs> <laughs> and and Doddy's sort of like, he's Arthur Mullard, isn't he? Yeah. He's, by Jove, missus, by Jove, missus. <laughs> and uh, Eddie Waring's doing... Um, Frankie Howard, isn't he? Yes. Ladies and gentlemen. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, Patrick Moore and Sue Lawley have uh, sort of swapped their thing. Ernie Wise gets a slap yep. and his wig jumps up in the air and yep. lands on Kojak. Yes. And then you've got, you've got um, Eddie Waring's voice coming out of Patrick Moore's face, haven't yes. you? <laughs> About if you look at the sky at night, what you can see. You see Hulkingston Rovers <laughs> or whatever it is. <laughs> But yeah, this scene is very much mid-70s entertainment, yes. all in one room, isn't mm-hmm. it? And then, you know, the, I, I just love the fact that they can throw in so many recognisable faces, a lot of whom are still recognisable yeah. even today. That's, mm-hmm. that's the great thing. There's not many people in that in that scene that you're thinking, who are they? Yeah. Possibly Eddie Waring, maybe. Yeah, maybe, but, 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 yeah. but most of them are, yeah. are still, mm. you know, still in the consciousness today. So the entertainers' party is in power, mm-hmm. and it's time for the state opening opening of Parliament. Mm-hmm. Except the only entertainers left are the puppets, aren't yes. they? So cut to nationwide. Yeah, you love this bit. With and this is my favourite bit, but mm-hmm. you know, um, where you've got the uh, Prime Minister and the Home Secretary being yep. interviewed, who are sooty and sweet. And I pr- love sweet. And the Prime Minister sorry, wants to play his side. The, the yeah. way he, he smashes it down on yeah. the desk. 
<laughs> and Michael Barrett puts it away and then it gets smashed on the desk again. But that's what Suji used yeah, to do. Yeah, I know, it's exactly you, you right. Know, it's, yeah. And it's, I just, I love sweep as well, because yeah. it's just squeaking. You had a sweep, We've got a sweep you? here somewhere, yeah. I had a, actually, I had a sweep somewhere. Yeah. He had a little bulb inside. Yeah, he's got you? a little squeaky bulb when you squeak it. Yeah, like, oh, we'll see if we can get the sweep out. Yeah. Well, do you know where he is? is? Yeah, we'll see if we can find him. But yeah, today in Parliament, and you, you've got all the puppets mm. there. You can see a clanger. Yes, um, it's major, isn't it? I don't know which one it is, actually. It's got a pink thing on it. It's major, I yeah, think. Possibly. Uh, and the original major. And Paddington. Yeah, it was a rather scrappy-looking A rather Paddington. rubbish Paddington, but this is before Paddington actually starts on BBC yeah. One, because Paddington starts in January 76. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that, that's nice. And we, we have to point out, this is filmed at Parnham House, not Athelhampton, as everybody seems to yeah. think it was. Well, this, this, that's still in Parliament, yeah, isn't it? But, so. but yeah, Parliament House is used as checkers. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, the goodies basically break into checkers. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's a Punch and Judy. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, in the cabinet room. And I love the way that suddenly the puppets stop talking oh, when the yeah. goodies come in. It's like walking into a pub where nobody knows you. Yeah, and they're really sinister all yeah. of a sudden. Yeah, it's like it's that real Western moment where, you know, the person... Yeah. Well, we, we did it once in York, walking yeah. to a pub and everybody looks. Um, we, you know, where the, you walk into the, in a Western where the stranger walks into the pub and everybody turns yeah. and looks and the atmosphere changes. But yes, they are very sinister. Yes. So... I would point out there are two puppets that are obviously missing here. Mm. Um, there's no Basil Brush. No. Because apparently he was asked. Yeah. But apparently Basil Brush doesn't work with puppets. Okay. According to Graham, anyway. Mm-hmm. And Emu's not there as well. Mm. Um, and uh, that that was in the in the draft script oh, as okay. well. So Perhaps Emu's too difficult to do. Rod Hull was going to be attacked by his own Emu or something <laughs> like that. So, yeah. So, yeah, then then you get the puppet attack scene. Yes. Naughty old Hector! Yeah. It's, it was just like people throwing them. It's over. mayhem, basically. Yes. But you've got Graham doing his... Because he's so good at that sort of physical comedy, yeah. Graham, isn't it? Mm-hmm. The way it sort of goes through his throat. Yes. And uh, yeah. you get the thing from Vision on sort of yeah. whizzing you around. You get several things. Yeah, there's a pair of them. They've been breeding. Yeah. Pinky and Perky raise the alarm. Yes. Yeah. And then you get a giant Andy Pandy, Luby Lou and Teddy. Mm-hmm. Now, I love the fact that Tim's brought his makeup bag with him at this point. <laughs> you don't think about it no. d- during the episode. No. It just seems obvious. Uh-huh. But yeah, clearly Tim's always got a makeup bag on yeah, him. Just in case. Just in case. Yeah. So they disguise themselves as puppets and have mm-hmm. to sort of hold their arms up as though yeah. they've got strings. Graham just sort of kicks the dirt and gravel, <laughs> doesn't he? Because he doesn't want to play. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, then there's a thing in the bins, isn't there? Which is, I think it's meant to be um, Oscar the Grouch. Well, well, it's crossed between that and the sort of Cookie Monster or yeah, something. Yeah, because it's blue, yeah. right? Because Oscar's green and Cookie Monster's yeah. blue. So yeah, it's a sort of Sesame Street Muppet Show but thing. But to get it? away with it, they've made yeah, it. They've sort had of to change it. Indiscriminate. Yeah. Yeah. And it gets eaten by Tim. There's yeah. just a bit of green fur hanging out yeah. of his mouth. And there's a sword fight with Bill and Ben. That's really well done, actually. Yeah. I can't imagine how hard it was to do that. Because Bill and Ben have got all these big, thick strings yeah. holding their arms up. And slowly during the th- the, th- the fight, the strings get severed and mm-hmm. they fall apart until yeah. the, all that's left is one arm holding the sword, isn't yeah. it? And Graham sort of... Is it Graham or Tim just it's pushes Graham, it into yeah. the into yeah. the ground? Yeah. Um, meanwhile, Bill Bill's having a fight with the Wombles. Yes. 
<laughs> and I, I do get the thing, the thing that Bill especially wanted to fight the Wombles because <laughs> they were a successful pop band doing doing silly music. Yes. So I wonder if there was some sort of rivalry, rivalry yeah. there. And a really silly gag, but it does make me laugh as we, little weed pops up yeah. out of a thing. Weed! And just gets chopped down immediately. Yeah. We're not putting up with that. <laughs> and then, then into the final set piece. Yes. As they think they've defeated all the puppets yeah. and slowly round the corner in the mm. distance. Yeah. And I love the way it's such a long way away. Yeah. Here comes the giant Dougal to yes. run them all over. Mm-hmm. Now, it's Peter Day on special effects, yeah. but I get the feeling it is most of the effects assistants are inside, yeah, inside it, lugging it, it around. Because it yeah. yeah. it's really well... I mean, it moves smoothly it enough. It does, yeah. yeah. But I can't imagine how much it weighed. No. And, no. you know, how it was... Is it on casters or what? what how know. is it done? I don't know. Because there's... I would imagine it must be, because if you were just walking, it'd be, more, it'd be a bit more like the Merca, which is yeah. a bit bumpy, isn't yeah. it? Or Dobbin. But then you've got the giant Zebedee as yes. well, which perhaps isn't quite as well made. Um, no, but, but yeah. I spent all the money on the Dougal. Yeah, so. but, but again, that sort of boinging up and down in the yeah. trees and mm-hmm. um, and Bill gets in a lot of sort of trouble with it. Yes. And eventually the house is destroyed as the Dougal and the Zebedee so, crash through the walls. Yes. And again, there's great model work yeah. here, both for the destruction of the house yeah. and, and the... Sh- the shot later when mm-hmm. the house is destroyed and the goodies are standing it yes. sort of by the gates. Yeah. It does get mentioned on BBC News, but how on earth the BBC News cameras managed to get the shot of the of, of the Dougal coming through the, the war? It's yeah. not as though the camera crew were there at we're the there, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you then get Corbett Woodle. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew you said Corbett Whittle. Uh, <laughs> I'm thinking of Private Whittle. That's something different. Yeah, Corbett Woodle with Sue Lawley's voice. Yes. Uh, who says I'm sorry I'll read that again mm-hmm. um, as there's a coalition government yes of all the the main leaders at this point yes so you uh, get a shot of, of Jeremy Thorpe Jeremy Thorpe Margaret mm-hmm. Thatcher and Harold yeah. Wilson yeah. Yeah. yeah who are sort of done as rendered as puppets yes. aren't they yeah. and then the credits roll Mm-hmm. And just as you think um, it's all over, mm-hmm. you get the goodies depicted as puppets being operated uh, by Jim Franklin yes. up in up in the sort of gallery or yeah. somewhere. Although I must point out that that joke was actually done in Vision On a few months beforehand in the mm-hmm. episode Wood, where right. Pat Kiesel and uh, Sylvester McCoy, or Sylvester yeah. the is, do a little yeah. puppet show yeah. as puppets mm-hmm. being operated by themselves. Mm-hmm. Whose strings are then cut by Tony Hart, yeah. whose then his strings are cut by a big hand that comes yeah. in, which is either Patrick Dowling or possibly Clive Doig. Yeah. yeah. I just wonder if the goodies saw vision on and, uh, and thought that's a good gag. We'll borrowed use the it. idea. Yeah. Yeah. But as with vision on, there's just mm-hmm. so much being chucked at the screen in this episode because it is slightly longer. Yeah. But I think it really justifies. Mm-hmm justifies its length and it, it does hold up and yet it, people remember the giant Dougal yes but forget about all the other clever yeah. stuff that's that's yeah. going on in this one so. yeah. well it's like the the kitten in kitten kong yeah that it? overshadows it, everything it, yeah, doesn't it's, it's it yeah that one image of, of the kitten on the post office tower yeah. and, and squashing michael Aspel. yeah it's it's what sticks in people's memories but it really is one of my favorite episodes yeah. of goodies and let's just briefly talk about Tim yes. generally shall we because yes. you, you, you said that you don't really remember Tim so much from the goodies no, it's from other things for I, you the, is it? I think the first thing I saw Tim Brooke Taylor in was um, me and my girl yeah. which is the Richard O'Sullivan 
sitcom. See, I, I don't know that at all. And not really. It's you know, and I, I obviously I'd, I'd like to see it again at some point. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's it's. I, I probably knew he was in the goodies, but yeah. you didn't really know what it, it was. No, yeah. and and I mean, I'm too young to remember um, this because yeah. this is like 1975, so I was only three yeah. at this point. So. I'm not even sure when I saw first saw the goodies. I might it might have been with you actually. I might have, sh- I might have yeah. shown you my goodies. So <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> I I don't honestly don't think that I'd seen it before then. Yeah. But yeah, I I mostly remember Tim Taylor for that and for doing the voices in the Banana Man cartoon yeah. with with Graham and Bill. Because again, I mean, you know, the goodies, wonderful though it is you do forget that tim's sort of done a lot of other stuff as well sometimes oh, yeah. and i, I think yeah. it's it's worth remembering yeah. his, his other work um but yeah I, I just wanted to do the goodies this this time because it is just so good and yeah it's just weird that i've got this bit of paper mm-hmm. from something that happened the day before mm-hmm. the you know one of the repeat transmissions it's, it's very odd um, in terms of goodies merchandise, I've got a few of the the books, mm-hmm. um, but I'm just so glad we finally got the complete yes. set on DVD. Yeah. So, if you haven't got it, now's a very good time, I think, to yes, to, to, well, you, to you, add it to your collection. You can now get everything because yeah. obviously they've uh, the network have re-released the BBC goodies and with the LWT series as yeah. well. Yeah, in a box set. So I mean, we've got them separately because we already had the you know the OWT stuff. But yeah, I mean, I think it's this episode particularly. It's it's not a typical Tim episode no. because there isn't any of the normal kind of stuff that he gets to do yeah. where he's very very patriotic. I mean, he is patriotic in this. You get the bit with the Queen. Yeah. But normally you get at least one speech about how great the country is and that sort of thing and he's, he's sort of union jack waistcoat and yeah. that, all that stuff that you remember and his baked bean ads and all that sort of stuff and it just shows his range yeah. i think you know i think he's a he was a little bit sort of overlooked in mm. the goodies because you've got graham's sort of mad scientist and bill's anarchist yeah and... i think graham and bill as a kid those are the ones you sort of focus on more than tim perhaps yeah. but you know, coming back to it as an adult, you can just see how damn strong he is. He yeah. is. He is, and he's very. And that's the thing. It's such a good balance that you've got the three of them. Yeah. That one or two of them can go off and do a mad thing, mm. and then the other one or two can oppose them. Yes. And that—that's why it really works. Yeah. And to be think. fair, it's normally Graham that's going off doing yeah. being a dictator or yeah. a mad scientist or whatever it is. You know, yeah. like with the post office and that sort of thing. So, so that triangle, I think, really works in a sort of dramatic tension when you're trying to get a plot going yes. and things like that. It's, it's sort of important to have all three, and they, they've, they've all got very distinct characters yes. that allow you to, to drive the story. So, and it wouldn't have worked without him. No, absolutely Tim not. Tim no. balances the other two. Yeah, oh no, it, it's very carefully worked out. That's, so. that's, that's the thing. So. so, yes, do yourself a favour if you've never seen any goodies and watch some. So, yeah, goodies rule okay? I yes. think they definitely do. I think they do. Okay. Right. Bye bye. Bye. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
Thank you, Lisa, for doing that. Thank you, Andrew, for doing that. Oh, at least we agree. Yes. Uh, one extra thing that I've just noticed mm-hmm. is that when Tim, Bill and Graham are on film doing the bouncing party, handing out leaflets, yes. there's a bloke in a sort of shop doorway on the right of the picture who's got a film camera, okay. a little 8mm eight, eight job. Mm-hmm. So I reckon he's a member of the public filming the filming. Yeah, OK. So I just wonder if that film still exists somewhere. Okay, it's in somebody's garage. And or I wonder if somewhere. Goody's fandom knows about it. And okay. if they don't, it's our present to you. Yes. Anyway, now Paul and Toppy return to look at The Twilight Zone. Hello, Round the Archives people. It's me, Paul the Shy Yeti from the Shy Life Podcast. I'm here again with my friend Toppy Smelly from the Smellcast and Matinee Minutia. How are you doing, Toppy? I'm well, I'm well. Uh, thanks for having me back. Oh, well, no, well, thanks to Andrew and Lisa as well. Um, now, this time we're going to talk, it's kind of possibly going to be a two-part, um, but a two-part chat, but we'll, 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 They'll be in different episodes. So we're going to talk about the Twilight Zone today, but I'd also like us to talk about Night Gallery another day soon. But um, we'll, we'll just take one series at a time. But, uh, All right. <laughs> so the Twilight Zone. When did you first see the Twilight Zone? Um, oh, in the 70s, it was something that... that uh, in, in, that channels, uh, you know, our three major networks... Um, during the day or late at night would play to fill in time. Um, if, if you, if you were a, a station out there and you wanted like, you know, something that would probably pull in people to watch twilight zone was a really good bet. Mm. And so I, for example, I remember one summer it was on every day at like 1230 in the afternoon and, uh, you know, it was summer and just every day I'd be watching it. Uh, of course, it, it uh, was far ahead uh, of uh, when I was uh, even born. Um, so that's a part of, uh, you know, TV that uh, was the first uh, se- before me. first season was 1959 and it ran for five seasons until 64. Well, um, so, I mean, the whole, the whole of the series was black and white, but... Um, I've I've bought the Blu-ray very recently, and I've been watching some season one episodes. And you know, I know you're a great a great fan of black and white TV, and I I have to sometimes be in the mood. But with the Twilight Zone, it, it's it, it it you don't notice it just suits it, and it doesn't look it's it's the quality so so crisp and and um that that even if you go if you had a problem with with black and white you shouldn't um you know it it just it's just perfect for twilight zone twilight zone has kind of a timeless quality and i i do think the black and white sort of keeps it somehow uh it's timeless mm-hmm. but, I, but i've been i've been watching quite a lot of old films uh, on a channel called talking pictures which is over here and i've been watching quite a lot of black and white films but some some films from like the late fifties or even the early sixties, they they feel they really do feel like you know like they're from their time. But I, I didn't find watching the Twilight Zone like I didn't think oh this is the fifties or this is the sixties. It just it 
it manages not to to date. Maybe, maybe some of the episodes um, will, or certain sort of things about society, or um, or, or things that you know maybe they're playing on the jukebox in, a, in, in an episode or whatever might date it. But um, the, the stories sort of do still feel quite sort of um, relevant, and um, you know that they they've really been bettered I would have thought mm-hmm. um, although saying that I was looking and of course we won't be covering these revivals but um, there, there was an 80s revival which ran from 85 to 89 which I think I may have seen some episodes of and that there was a, a revival between 2002 and 3 which I don't think I saw at all and then there's a, a third revival which I think is happening this very minute which began in 2019. So I don't know if that means that anthology shows are sort of coming back round. I know, you know, I know I've sort of heard people sort of say, as far as regarding like short stories, that they used to be really popular. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, at the time of the original Twilight Zone, a lot of those stories were perhaps adaptions of, of existing short stories, but short stories sort of maybe went out of favour a bit in uh, from the sort of 80s onwards but uh, you know I've always liked uh, from the writing point, point of view I I always enjoy writing short stories mm-hmm. and well uh, yeah uh, uh, a lot of people think oh the, the Twilight Zone invented anthology storytelling mm-hmm. and of course it, it didn't at all but it took advantage of, of that format to uh, you know, present a different, completely different story, completely different cast every time. And of course, uh, radio, you know, I, I dare say that Rod Serling was uh, certainly grew up on radio dramas. Mm-hmm. And one thing radio had a lot of uh, was anthology uh, radio mm-hmm. series. Um, they had bucket loads of them. Yeah, yeah. I've been listening to sort of a few of those sorts of things myself over the autumn I didn't even realize you know it existed um, mm-hmm. so we uh, we should talk about Rod Serling mm. who uh, uh, I don't think the first season he uh, actually showed his face but but from then on uh, his his uh, visage was cemented with the Twilight Zone and certainly his voice was uh, as as the opening and closing narrator of every every episode. Well, the, the weird thing the weird thing is the the Blu-ray version that I've been watching. Um, I I'm actually seeing the episodes in a way that I've never seen them before because not only do they keep some of the adverts from the time, but you do see Rod Serling, but it's like he pops up sort of. When after sort of before the titles run, um, sort of saying what's coming next week, right. I've never seen I've never seen that on any you know any time I've seen it on TV or even earlier DVD releases. Um, so I think uh, in my head, in my head, that was typical. And what may have happened is uh, for for getting in commercials, uh, it very well could be they edited that out mm, just yeah. to give a uh, you know another minute of commercials yeah and um also uh, something i'd not seen before w- was that um there was a pilot episode uh, which i think you you do see him 
in again at the start in the way that it would later become i think they must have sort of decided no that that, that didn't work and then later reverse that decision but um it's, it's fascinating to think that they've kept some of this all this stuff in the archives and it's perhaps only uh, emerging uh, now in this form uh, that uh, it just... could be i mean i've certainly never seen twilight so well that's not true i mean when i lo- look at it on netflix or whatever that must be an unedited version mm. um so I don't know, um, but Rod Serling uh, had uh, made his reputation prior to Twilight Zone, and uh, he was writing for a lot of live television one-hour dramas. Um, you know, did some really long remembered and uh, and revered um, scripts for various uh, networks and and. Uh, the show so he was very well known as like mm. a you know a top top-notch writer mm. and i dare say that when cbs picked it up uh you know i doubt they would have if rod serling hadn't been uh the writer mm. in fact the first looking at, i'm looking at um, the wikipedia page for the first season and the first seven episodes every single script is Written by Rod Serling, including the, most of the ones that I've I've watched recently. Where is everybody? Which is well, like one of those ones where a man, a man appears and he he's the only person around. Um, one for the angels, which is well, is involves an angel. <laughs> uh, Mister Denton on Doomsday and the sixteen millimeter shrine. Um, they they all sort of. Um, episodes that that he that he wrote and and it was only even even looking at the list of episodes when you get to you get to a lot where like there's quite a a few that are based on short stories by richard matheson but then the teleplay is done by rod serling Mm -hmm. Um, yeah brad serling definitely molded the template for the show in, in, in such a way that um you know, he was certainly curating scripts from other writers that sort of, uh, you know, would have um, that little twist ending, um, that little bit of uh, oh at the end <laughs> yeah. that the show was was famous for. Yeah, funnily enough, I mentioned Richard Richard Matheson. By by later in season one, Richard Matheson seems to be actually writing those early ones. They're based on short stories he'd already done, which Rod Serling adapted. But uh, late, later on, it, it looks like Richard Matheson perhaps wrote, wrote his own um, scripts. Yeah, uh, he, he was... Uh, he jived with what mm-hmm. Rod Serling wanted. And Rod Serling, you know, uh, this was his baby. Um, he really wanted it to work. He put everything he had into it to the point of sheer exhaustion and so once it got established he he said i i think maybe for my own health i better start (laughs) having other people write this because he he really did write himself uh ragged doing a, a weekly television show of the caliber you know that the scripts for twilight zone was so more and more he uh you know, he relied on other writers. One of the episodes I watched, uh, Mr. Denton on Doomsday, 
has Martin Landau in it, and there was a commentary that Martin Landau had recorded. So I guess on the even though the Blu-ray is quite a new um, release, I think some of these things probably come from previous DVD releases. Um, so although Martin Landau is no longer with no longer with us, he'd recorded a commentary, and he he said because I think he I believe he was. So he was in like the third episode, and I think he was in one of the very last episodes five years later, and he said that you could tell that the five years of sort of dealing with TV executives had sort of uh, really worn Rod Serling down. Um, yeah, and in fact, you'll, you'll find he wrote about it often. Uh, um, I think one episode next stop will be where, you know, there's this... Uh, close up of a mouth shouting at an underling, push, push, Willoughby, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, ordering him to work harder. And all, all this guy, um, you know, wants to do is uh, get off on a train at some quiet place where he can just rest and not be so harassed. And uh, that was the theme of a lot of Rod Serling's scripts and, and the seasons of. Twilight Zone. They weren't. They weren't short by any means. The first season had thirty-six episodes. I think um, pretty much all of the seasons had. You know, um, season two was twenty-nine episodes. Season three, thirty-seven. Season four is weird because it was our episodes. So there was only eighteen. Mm-hmm. Season five was thirty-six again. So yeah, that's when the seasons were long. By the mid seventies. Your typical hour-long drama had like twenty-three episodes a season, mm-hmm. but thirty-six episodes. Woo, woo. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's that's quite a quite a schedule. Yeah, I think as you say, it's sort of in because even looking at series, when I did my article on Bewitched, the early seasons of Bewitched were sort of at least thirty-two, and then by the time the se- the series was coming to an end, it was down to a more manageable twenty-four. Mm-hmm. Uh, although. By the time they were doing those later seasons of which they probably had so few, few ideas or were reusing things because they'd been doing it so long. So it probably wasn't an easy 24. It was probably, a, oh, my goodness, what are we going to do to feel 24? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and um, well, one thing as a writer, Rod Serling, uh, and you could see it in many of his scripts, wanted to comment on civilization, uh, human beings, uh, societies. And um, networks kind of didn't really want controversial uh, stories about those things. Um, And uh, it was hard to sell like a really good story um, that was ripe and juicy because the networks would say, well, this is too controversial. We can't. We can't write. we, We can't do this. And Rod Serling knew that in a format like this, if he just disguised it a little bit, is maybe something leaning towards science fiction or fantasy that he could easily write about uh, the kinds of heavy subjects he enjoyed um, writing about, and he he knew he uh, and he did he he you know the networks like. Oh, it's a story about spaceships and outer space. Woo. Well, I guess, but there's actually a very deep theme uh, that perhaps <laughs> the network's executives just went over their heads or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, 
Uh, moving on to season two. Now that's the we were talking a bit about this before uh, we started recording. Uh, this is the season that has some episodes that were recorded on videotape as part of a well, really as a cost cutting exercise. But um, there was only right. Yeah. So know, it was done on film. Uh, yes, usually. And, yeah. and then I don't some executive type, and this is exactly the type of person that Rod mm-hmm. Serling was not terribly fond of. Said, "Well, let's just do this. I know on video, and it'll cost us less." <laughs> Luckily, there was only six episodes done. That oh, way. was that all? Yeah. I knew it was short-lived um, because it was just not – I mean, people weren't used to that. They were used to film, and they had, I think they got a lot of complaints, and um, they gave up on that. Luckily, one of my favorite episodes is called Eye of the Beholder, which involves a, a character having a, a, an operation on and ha- having bandages around their face for – majority of the episode and you only sort of see what they look like at the end and luckily that's i don't know why that one stuck with me i think it's because it was one of those twists that really kind of affected me yeah that that was a uh grade a level twist at the end (laughs) thank goodness that one wasn't a videotape one that one is a film one so um because because it would have been a shame to have um, for, for that to have um, had that condition, but um, yeah. Well, just you. before uh, we leave the video aspect, you know, you and I um, were I'm both fond of Dark Shadows, and of yeah. course, when Dark Shadows started out. It was black and white video. Mm. I love the quality yeah. of uh, black and white video. However, we were watching. Um, well, to call it a negative would be not correct, but Dark Shadows had been saved uh, in particular by the producer, um, Dan Curtis. And I think when you're watching video, the video episodes of, of Twilight Zone, you're watching kinescopes. I don't, I, and that's why it has a harsh, very harsh quality to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it does, it just, and it looks, so I remember probably back in the 90s when I first saw um, a couple of those video episodes, I, I was kind of like, well, this is this is just weird. It doesn't, just doesn't, because it's so few episodes, it just doesn't sit. Um, yeah, and a kinescope, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, it's just uh, they would, you know, have the video screen playing the video, and they would wheel up a film camera, and they would, Take a movie of the video. Mm. That, that's a kinescope. Yeah, so, I mean, one of the things about the Twilight Zone is I think I think a lot, a lot of times, you know, when people describe the, the Twilight Zone, they say you know, Twilight Zone is sort of sci-fi, and maybe if they mention Night Gallery, they mention that that's sort of more horror. Which with Night Gallery, that is true. Most pretty much all of the stories are supernatural or horror. But Twilight Zone has episodes that are far and beyond just sci-fi. I mean, there are one or two, and one of my favourites we'll come to later um, is definitely more of a horror one. So I think Twilight Zone did dip into more than just the sci-fi genre and fantasy. It was probably broader. um, Yeah, much, much broader. It had a good mix. Um, 
you know, when they were curating the what they wanted to show in a season, you know, some were very humorous. Uh, it was just all about the humor. Um, some were, you know, serious. Some were, you know, total science fiction. Um, some were melodramas. Uh, yeah, a great mix. Mm-hmm. Are there one episodes that, like, you always sort of particularly enjoyed or that stick in your yeah so many of them certainly you know the ones that most people mention um you know because they are so good um they've certainly left their impression on me like okay any episode with william shatner (laughs) i'm I'm there uh you know any episode with burgess meredith i'm there uh but uh you know, I I love uh, whatever that one with Shatner where he's on the plane and there's a yeah. gremlin. Yeah, I I love that uh, episode where they're at a diner and there's a fortune telling machine. Mm-hmm. Love it, and uh, I love Burgess Meredith's episode where he's the guy that survives a nuclear blast, and he says, "Oh, I have all the time in the world to read," and breaks his glasses. Yeah, yeah, and then uh, we mentioned Bewitched earlier. There's an episode from uh, season three with Elizabeth Montgomery, um, which was shown in September '61. I I believe she doesn't speak throughout the for the whole episode. Um, mm-hmm. And um, yeah, cause she, she that was before she did Bewitched, but she was quite well. Just read a, a biography about her. She was quite. Um, well known by that stage. Um, I don't recall Elizabeth Montgomery. Which uh, what was the plot of the episode, episode? Is called Two. Um, she's a female a female soldier wearing a tattered uniform. Stumbles into a deserted city. Huh. Um, Interesting. You know Agnes Moorhead, of course, who was also on Bewitched. She played Samantha's mother. Yeah. The episode on Twilight Zone that she was in, she also never uttered a, 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 a syllable, a recognizable syllable. Yeah, it says um, the episode relies heavily on the music, and there's very little dialogue throughout. Um, yeah, yeah. The um, the Agnes Moorhead episode, uh, definitely a favorite of mine. I remember when I first saw that one, it was, you know just long after I had been watching Twilight Zone and and I guess I'd just never seen it and I was really that wowed me when I saw that one there's a lot of um, still lots of sort of stories by Richard Matheson even in season three and they they do a version of um, I Sing the Body Electric by Ray Bradbury they still keep to the format of sort of well 25 minute half an hour episodes right uh, up until the end of season three and then you get to season four where they and i'm still not quite sure why they they decided to do this thing of doing our episodes for that se- for that season four and uh then they went back to half an hour yes. is that what happened that's right uh, yeah i think that was uh, <clears throat> you know i i i I really doubt that Rod Serling would have said, yes, please. I want to write hour long episodes. Again, a network decision. Uh, Paul, um, 
I, I remember reading, as famous as Twilight Zone is today, and as much as it lasted five seasons, I'm pretty sure I read that it was never particularly super highly rated. It mm-hmm. never achieved uh, the audience in its day. Now, am I making that up, or do you recall um, anything about No, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I, uh, I know... Uh, from that from that side, there's no there's no sort of mention, sort of. Um, yeah, it was one of those things that has. I mean, I I I don't. I'm not even sure when it was first shown in the UK. Whether it w- was shown sort of in the 60s or or a lot later, or quite. It's one of those things. I'm sure someone listening would know where to to look to to get that sort of information. But mm-hmm. that, that does sort of interest me. It's like all the shows that you and I have talked, the American shows we've talked about. I, you know, when we talk about Wild Wild West, I, I, I don't actually know when it was first shown in the UK. I know Star Trek. I don't think Star Trek was even shown until about 1970 in the UK. Uh, I might be wrong, but I know it was pretty much finished or had finished by the time it was got first got shown. Um, yeah. So you would say like you were how old when you ran across Twilight Zone? Well, yes, I was. I was going to t- share my my first experiences. Um, we're talking about the mid midish nineteen eighties. Oh God! Um, yeah. Well, it was show at that point. It was being. I'm sure since it's been, you know, this is was just a particular period of when it was shown. Um, I was old enough. I actually, it, I didn't have my own video. Because by the late 80s, I had my own video and I could set what I liked, what films I liked. I, they used, you used to find, I mean, there was only four channels um, in, in the UK. But, you know, I'd always look in the newspapers to see if there were any horror films or anything like that. But I think Twilight Zone was probably a little bit earlier before I had my own um, video. And I, I remember asking my mum if it was okay um, to record um twilight zone and I, I knew the name twilight zone but i didn't really know you know to me i was probably you know 10 11 12 or something i i knew of it but i didn't it seemed very adult and very sort of mm-hmm. i remember when i first shot when i first saw the avengers um around the same time it was on like at nine or ten o'clock and i and I, I was allowed to stay up to watch it because my parents obviously remembered it and they knew it was probably okay for me to watch it um mm-hmm. But I sort of had a, an inbuilt reverence towards Twilight Zone, and um, I, I can still remember the first episode that, that that I videoed that that first time I set the video, and we'll, we'll come to that in a moment because it was a season five episode. But mm-hmm. yeah, so I was I was probably um, it, it was just amongst all the different programs that were, were repeated at perhaps midnight or mm-hmm. two o'clock in the morning, and that's certainly where I discovered Night Gallery as well that was i mean when we talk about night gallery but well, i suppose it's okay to mention it but they they used to chop night gallery into little bits because sometimes an episode of night gallery would be maybe would be one story or two stories or or sort of three stories and then a little five minute one or and, and by the time i saw it they were chopping it up and just using it to fill space where they had like a five minute um, space at like three o'clock in the morning or something. So mm-hmm. it was. It was only. It wasn't until I got the DVDs with Night Gallery that I actually saw it in its proper form. But uh, yeah, um, I know we'll talk about Night Gallery 
some other time. But um, uh, I'm much. In fact, I know I haven't seen all the episodes of Night Gallery, and I was never compelled to watch it as I was Twilight Zone. Although I certainly saw some episodes, um, it just uh, it never. I, I don't know. Maybe it's because. It was color. Maybe it was an hour long. It was. It seemed strange and never as interesting as well, the Twilight Zone. It'll make for a good discussion because, spoiler alert, I I prefer Night Gallery, <laughs> but only partly because it's horror and partly because it's that early seventies color. Um, yes, it's really. Great. I really love that sort of like the fashions and the kind of garishness and the like. Yeah. Know, but we'll, yes, we'll, that's that's right up your alley. I think we'll we'll we'll, um, we'll, we'll talk about that next time. But um, yes, uh, but season, season four, this season with like fifteen minute episodes, still has Richard Matheson writing a lot of the stories. Um, Odd yes. Serling's sort of writing. I, yes. I don't know. Just glancing at the titles, I don't know how many of these are. You know, if you were going to take the top ten episodes of, of Twilight Zone, I, there there is one called printer's devil which is a burgess meredith one i remember years ago now i did a friend of mine let me a tape with some tapes um with season four episodes on so i remember watching a lot of them and not really enjoying them as much but there were one or two that did work for me and, and unfortunately I, I i couldn't tell you which ones they were from the titles but but i think it's worth watching it's worth watching because it's still the Twilight Zone, even though it's a different. Oh, yeah. yeah, they the t- the scripts aren't as tight because they didn't need to be. They had fifty mm-hmm. minutes to fill, um, and um, you know, to, the, and to be honest, uh, I'm not familiar, very familiar with the hour long episodes because when I was watching it, it was syndicated, and I I I would gather the package that networks uh, or TV stations uh, would get was a a half hour slot and I bet you the hour long episodes were not in that syndicated package Mm -hmm. and also there was they didn't even start, the the, the previous series ended sort of in like the summer of 62 and they didn't come back um, until the January of 63 because it it almost wasn't a full um, well, it wasn't a full season. It, they it just ran from January to May. Um, mm. I, 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 you almost wonder, was was what was the you know, was there a hiatus with it? Whilst they tried, whilst they worked out what what was, I'm sure it's been written about, but I don't have I don't have the facts in front yeah. of me now. But uh, I don't either. I did just remember uh, uh, one of the weirdest ones uh, that was vivid, vividly burned into my memory. I don't remember the title, but it uh, takes place inside a small uh, apartment mm. that seems to be in high rise, and it's hot. And mm. it's like it's hot because something's happening to the sun. I forget what. It's either the Earth is moving closer to the sun, yeah. or the sun is uh, going supernova or something. And it's just boiling, boiling, boiling hot. And there's stragglers that are in this apartment building. You know who are neighbors who are there, and for some reason, this lady hasn't left her, and she's just deliriously hot. And 
What a weird that had a mood and and uh, I'd be so vivid. Uh, do, do, does that one ring a bell with you? It does, but I I can't sort of place which season it belongs to. But uh, the the weird thing about um, you know they make that they make that change to to an hour to our episodes, but then for the final season. I don't know that they even knew, I don't know they even knew it was the final season at the time. They go back to the the old format, uh, and the final season. I'm sure that there there will be people who sort of can evaluate the you know this season's the best season, that season's the best season. But se- season five does have some of the you know does have some really famous episodes in, including the one you mentioned, Nightmare at Twenty Thousand Feet. The, um, that you, was Richard Matheson, I think. Yes, it was, and um, it, were, it was uh, uh, a William Shatner episode, of course. Before we we say goodbye to the listeners, it's this season that happened to be showing the first time I I saw Twilight Zone, and I think they showed two episodes. I vaguely think they showed one called Probe Seven Over and Out, which was sort of about a crash-landed spaceship. I think. Mm-hmm. Oh, and it has Richard Basehart in, although I hadn't seen Voyage at that time. But I think I was aware that he was somebody. But the episode I really remember from that those two episodes was one called Night Call. This Alpha Keith lives alone in the outskirts of London flats, a tiny rural community in Maine. Up until now, the pattern of Miss Keene's existence has been that of lying in her bed or sitting in a wheelchair reading books, listening to a radio eating, napping, taking medication, and waiting for something different to happen. Hello? I'm sorry. I didn't hear. The thunder. Hello? Who's on the line? It's basically the the idea that, uh, like a telephone line falls down in a graveyard and this lady starts getting um, messages, um, phone calls. <laughs> that was much more horry, supernatural. So it perhaps it wasn't a typical um, Twilight Zone episode or at least uh, it certainly wasn't science fiction but it was probably appealed to me as a growing horror fan. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and stuck with me so much that I can remember you know, 35 years later or more. Yeah. Uh, there were some creepy ones. Uh, it, what your description of that episode reminds me of the episode of the the little girl. I think this was a videotaped episode. Mm-hmm. The little girl has a toy phone and she speaks to her that's dead that. grandmother on it. <laughs> well, that's the thing. It probably is um, almost a, a remake of an earlier episode. But if you see the remake first, then it works just as well. It's um, and looking at this night call was another Richard Matheson one. So. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I think when, you know, uh, uh, if for some uh, bizarre reason uh, folks listening have never watched much of it, um, first of all, that's hard to believe. But second of all, uh, what's fun about it is that it's eminently, uh, um, well, rewatchable, but uh, that's not the word I'm looking for. Like a binge watch. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's <laughs> eminently bingeable. But also, for people who who love old TV, is it super fun uh, to find all of the 
uh, actors, you know, that come through, um, you know, Clint Eastwood, uh, Robert Redford, um, uh, Charles Bronson, just to name a few, and of course all the other uh, people that would later go on to probably have a, a regular TV series or just our faces, you know, names, you know, and that's another really fun thing about it. But it looks like it looks like, um, according to Wikipedia, that Nightcall was originally supposed to be transmitted the around the time that JFK was um, assassinated. Uh, okay. it, but it, but although it wasn't shown in, in the end until February '64, so whether it got bumped down the schedule, I'm not doing an advert for the Blu-ray that I've just bought. I'm not getting any commission. But um, one of the things that made me decide to buy the whole thing, the whole pack. Because all five seasons in one pack in, on Blu-ray was that I think it was like certainly in the UK it was um, about fifty dollars um, um, for the whole thing, and there were, I think there were one hundred and fifty something episodes, so that's like silly money. I mean, we're paying fifty cents or whatever, or fifty p an episode. It, it's, it, it was just like, well, okay, I kind of really have to. Oh, certainly. Uh, I'll tell you one thing. I mean, if uh, if there are a lot of episodes that have commentaries from either a director or a writer or an actor that was involved, I'd really love to to see those. Certainly, um, the, the season one um, disc that I started watching, I think every single episode um, had a comment, either a commentary or or some extra, or those. those uh, weird adverts that uh, Rod Serling had recorded, um, sort of related to next week's episode. Uh, so there's so much, so many extras. It's if you're watching the episode, then you're watching the commentary. You're getting two different. You know, it's like having two different things, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, did you know that Rod Serling spent the latter years of his life right here where I live? In your house. That's my house. Not quite. He had a <laughs> house, uh, a very, very nice house on the lake. Yeah, and his widow remained there for many years. There were two reasons: one, that it was a beautiful area where Rod Serling could relax um, and get away from Hollywood, and also uh, he uh, taught writing here. Um, so, at a little famous, uh, semi-famous uh, uh, place of learning that specialized in uh, uh, TV, movies, and radio. Um, so he was a, a teacher here and lived here and uh, enjoyed this area. I, I don't know. Um, and again, I'm sure it's easily find out more. Next time when we talk about Night Gallery, we will uh, have this information for your listeners uh, as to what he did between um, Twilight Zone and, and Night Gallery, because Twilight Zone finished in June 64 and Night Gallery didn't really start getting going until. 69, I think. Um, um, I know one that. thing. He he wrote uh, at least one treatment, or the final treatment, of Planet of the Apes. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and there you go, Planet of the Apes. Mm-hmm. Famous twist ending that was very <laughs> Twilight zone uh, Also, he was doing a lot of narration. Yes. Uh, mm. He used to be the narrator for all the Jacques Cousteau specials. Mm. And uh, so he was doing a ton of voice work. Um, next time, listeners, we will 
we'll talk a bit more about that but we will also move on to night gallery so um we'll get our pens and paper and an art and we'll see if we can draw you up a, a beautiful article which we can sort of work some sort of sinister story into um exactly <laughs> with a twist ending yes <laughs> well toffee thank you very much for talking to me about twilight zone as you know we found when we you know when you're talking about a whole series it's, it's, it, it, you're just sort of picking moments that are particularly personal that uh, you liked um there, there's so much more to explore oh yeah um worth watching folks yes definitely yep. well, we'll be back we'll be back Oh boy. Oh boy. the marionette theater historic marionette theater it's a lovely uh, turn of the century movie house uh, that was originally a venue for vaudeville we are here tonight because we have a love of movies and television go ahead and talk about what was going on in the world at the time of this movie why <laughs> did you choose this movie <laughs> Oh, I feel like I'm I'm in the police station and the, the hot light's been turned on me. Okay, explain yourself. Toppy Smelly, DJ Star Sage, Matinee Minutia, live first and third Fridays at 9pm Eastern on Univoz. Many thanks to Paul and Toppy for yes, doing that. Indeed, there will be more coming up for them. Not necessarily together, though. Yes, well, we can have them together. We can have them apart. We can. If you'll pardon the expression. <laughs> I'm sure they wouldn't mind either way. I'm sure they wouldn't. <laughs> and now we're coming to the end of the episode already. Mm-hmm. So it's fewer articles, but longer yes. ones. Yes. So thank you to everyone for listening. Yes. And we'll, be back, we'll be back soon with an in-conversation. Mm-hmm. And... Episode 49, of course. Mm -hmm. But now, to round off, Martin looks at... Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Starring Richard Basehart. David Edison. to the bottom of the sea. These days, the four big Irwin Allen productions of the 1960s, Lost in Space, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, The Time Tunnel, and Land of the Giants, are rarely looked upon as being quality television. Don't get me wrong, they looked great, they looked expensive, they told cracking weekly adventure stories, but somehow they failed to be at the cutting edge, relying instead on the tired old sci-fi tropes of 1950s post-war pulp. Somehow, whilst certain other shows of a similar vintage are considered to be great examples of whichever genre they represent, the Irwin Allen productions are often thought of as outmoded, old-fashioned, or just plain silly. Nevertheless, as kids, we lapped them up. My personal favourite was the submarine one, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, based upon the 1961 movie of the same name starring Walter Pidgeon and Robert Sterling in the roles which are played by Richard Basehart and David Hedison in the TV series. 
and reusing the sets, plots, and both model and footage made for that film and other Alan movies to create the weekly adventures aboard the Super Submarine Seaview, a beautifully designed craft with manta ray wings, Cadillac tail fins, and eight massive impossible pictured windows made of transparent herculite in the nose that gave it a spectacular, um, Seaview, and which opened up the otherwise claustrophobic interiors magnificently. Stock footage would feature prominently throughout all of these shows, to save both time and money, of course, and sometimes shaped precisely the story that was being told. David Hedison's previous appearance in Alan's movie The Lost World, for example, meant that one episode could use scenes from that movie in order to tell that week's story without too much effort, this time featuring Captain Lee Crane. The first year of Voyage, dating from 1964 but set several years in the future, was filmed in black and white and overall looked rather grittier than later seasons and dealt with more adult stories of espionage as the crew of the Seaview battled Cold War shenanigans and evil organisations bent upon the destruction of the free world in much the same way as Spectre did in the Bond films at the time and Thrush would do in The Man from Uncle at around the same time, not forgetting the ever-present threat of the rise of Carmianism. In later seasons, the stories would become more fanciful, if not downright wacky, as the influence of other types of shows like Batman started to gain popularity and the 60s became ever more swinging, and the conventional white-bred militaristic zeal of the po-faced gung-ho crew of the Seaview became less fashionable. Year two would bring fewer bow windows, inconsistent model shots, stories shot in gloriously vibrant colour, and the flying sub, one of the greatest aircraft-slash-submarine designs ever to excite the minds of a certain generation of children. Year 3 brought a bit of a downturn in script quality, as the espionage and spy adventures were replaced by more bizarre threats like werewolves and aliens, and the crew would face cancellation with their upper lips truly stiffened in 1968, and would then sail into television history with no chance of returning. The first episode was broadcast in America on September the 14th, 1964, when I was less than two months old, so you may wonder why I have quite such fond memories of the show. Well, obviously, it sometimes took British television a few years to discover and broadcast these stories, so they started to appear on our screens when I was at a much more impressionable age, the sort of age where someone might, for example, buy you an annual tied into a television show, or donate one at the office in a, oh, I thought your kids might like that kind of a way. Anyway. However it came to me, I still have that annual on my shelves, vandalised ever so slightly with my biro in that, but the eight windows don't match the four ones in the episodes I'm watching manner that obviously used to bother me. And on the front cover there's a transfer of Zebedee from the Magic Roundabout perched on the submarine, as somebody must have bought me a set of rub-down transfers at some point, and I would have been looking around for places to do the actual rubbing down on. Voyage obviously appealed to the tiny vandal in me, as it was the logo in that iconic wibbly-wobbly lettering that inspired me to try and recreate it in blue biro on the white headboard of my bed when I was still far too young to know any better, a tiny act of vandalism, I must add, that I never repeated. The other reason that I remember the show quite so vividly is, of course, because my big sister loved it, or at the very least she particularly admired David Hedison when she was also at a significantly different impressionable age. So, it remains one of the few shows that I have vague memories of us watching together in those far-distance one-telly-in-the-house days. The pilot episode, Eleven Days to Zero, written and directed by Irwin Allen himself, was made in 1963 and filmed in full colour, but broadcast from black-and-white prints, and, as it should, serves as a reasonable introduction to the crew of the Seaview and the types of adventures they were likely to be having. 
For the purposes of this article, I decided to watch that unaired pilot from the DVD set rather than the broadcast version, although there's not a great deal to differentiate the two other than that glorious colour, which would vanish for a year but resurface later on, and that the unaired pilot on the DVD still has the series title sequence stitched onto it, rather than the one-time-only captions made for the actual pilot, which still upsets some fans. And, as is Alan's way, you are hurled into the action pretty much from the off in an episode that manages to display several of the popular tropes of the genre of a significant number of submarine movies in its 48-minute runtime. There's a dive to below crush depth, a depth charge attack, and even a battle with a giant octopus in the course of the episode, all of which, of course, were sequences that featured in the original movie, cut in wholesale, but woven together, at least for the moment, to tell an entirely different story. The plot of the film would inevitably be revisited in a later episode, but for the moment we're telling a whole new story. Sort of. So that viewers couldn't claim that it's just a rehash of the film recut for television. That said, the film could be said to be a little bit overlong and slowly paced, and perhaps it isn't the greatest submarine movie ever made, although it made a few quid at the box office. One of the criticisms often levelled at the Irwin Allen productions is that he would often substitute action for actual characterisation and emotion, and it's a fair point. This bunch of guys, and guys, it is all guys, guys, are not the most emotive lot. Even Del Monroe's petulant Kowalski is painted in the broadest of strokes, and it is in the moments when they try and engage with some kind of backstory or contrived conflicts that eh, the script suffers most. Still, that's not what we're here for, really, is it, guys? Let's get on with the action and leave the actors to try and find their moments of character wherever they can. Anyway, the episode itself opens and immediately shows the documentary roots of the filmmaker by starting with an enthusiastic voiceover which tells us, in the most gung-ho manner, about the public image of this mighty weapon we will come to know as the Sea View. <laughs> is the Sea View, the most extraordinary submarine in all the seven seas. Its public image is that of an instrument of marine research. In actuality, it is the mightiest weapon afloat and is secretly assigned to the most dangerous missions against the enemies of mankind. In command of the Sea View, Captain John Phillips. And in overall charge of scientific projects, the creator and builder of the fabulous ship, Admiral Harriman Nelson. And to help us work out where we are that carved out of solid rock, 500 feet below the Nelson Institute in Southern California, there is a secret base housing the Sea View that few men know about. This is the Sea View's top secret submarine base. It is carved out of solid rock and is located on the Southern California coast, 500 feet beneath the famed Nelson Institute of Marine Research. Few men know of its existence, and fewer men even suspect its purpose. The disembodied voice also introduces us to both Admiral Nelson and Captain John Phillips. Eh? But thankfully, the mighty voiceover doesn't hang around much after that despite having already outstayed its welcome. The Admiral and his captain are heading off to an important meeting of the full council of something or other, which is made up of a lot of elderly grey-haired military gentlemen who seem to be sitting around running things everywhere in those days, often while smoking pipes and speaking grave thoughts about protecting the free world. Peculiar times. 
But only a year after the Cuban Missile Crisis and not long after the Communist witch hunts, perhaps we ought not to be surprised about this battle to maintain what was doubtless considered normal and forever. Probably. All those average families living in average neighbourhoods probably sat around nodding their heads sagely and agreeing with every word in that lost world of what is now considered the type of ordinary suburban America that they seem so eager to try and recover. Not an equal world, of course, especially if you weren't a Caucasian male of a certain age and attitude, but a world forged in the post-war economic and technological boom, when America really could make a decent enough claim that it was, in certain aspects anyway, the top nation in the world. Funnily enough, however, the forces of evil are to be found everywhere and seem hell-bent on bringing this wonderfully idyllic capitalist utopia crashing down around its ears, as the bloke painting the sign at the entrance to the Nelson Institute obviously the few men who know about it are more numerous than they think, is a wrong one. And as the car carrying Nelson and Phillips pauses beneath him, using his spray gun, he paints a big old cross on the roof for evil reasons. An X marks the spot. That the big X he painted in the close-up doesn't really match the one on the location film doesn't really matter all that much, because our heroes are now, quite literally, marked men. And so, on one of those windy Californian roads pretty much designed for precisely this sort of melodramatic action sequence, our heroes come under attack from the type of helicopter that everyone seemed to get rather excited about in those days, because they were still a relatively new thing, and while some of the cutaway shots to the static copter shot on a soundstage somewhere fail to quite match the location work and the dummy that falls into the sea when Nelson shoots one of the villains looks very much like the unconvincing dummy it is, the sea view loses its captain to enemy action and with exploding cars and helicopters the series can definitely be said to have started with a bang. And so we reach the opening titles, which are another memorable sequence of the kind that Irwin Allen's series did so well, even though it is mostly made up of stock footage of that terribly impressive model of the sea view and a couple of custom shot sequences featuring the main cast, all backed with that memorably rousing nautical theme, which is very much in the tradition of the composers Kachaturian and Dvorak and is consequently very traditional, if not old-fashioned, considering it was made in the era of rock and roll and the birth of the Beatles. Indeed, this world we are being introduced to is extraordinarily traditional in a United States military kind of a way, despite the fact that great pains are taken to point out that this submarine, armed as it is with nuclear missiles and a lot of other sophisticated weaponry, is actually supposed to be a civilian outfit. The style of the filming and that music reminds the viewer very much of those look at the world in awe and wonder short films that often used to accompany the cinema releases of the time, and this is, of course, not surprising. The underwater world of Jacques Cousteau and documentary filmmakers like Ivan Tors and the wonderful world of the Disney Corporation would have been a huge influence and very probably taught a lot of the people working on this show much of what they knew. It might also explain the more stilted aspects of the screenplay, as the characters often created for such documentaries were seldom written as anything more than ciphers. That said, the crew of the Seaview were developed over the course of the four series, as the actors created those familiar television characters that people came to love watching. So we do have to give them a lot of credit for making the most of what they were given to work with. The other interesting aspect of those iconic opening titles is the effusive voiceover that returns and manages to repeat the title of the programme twice within the space of less than 30 seconds, whenever the caption in that beautifully rendered iconic wibbly-wobbly typeface appears. And in the tradition of American dramatic series of this sort, at that time it assumes that nobody can read and feels the need to read everything out loud for the benefit of those of us at home. 
later series would add a memorable radar scope graphic over the montage of impressive model shots of that fabulous submarine, but we're a long way from that as yet. Meanwhile, back at the plot, we are greeted by the sort of thing that's going to become very familiar to viewers of this show over the years, a montage of stock footage of storms and other freak weather events, including a reasonable model shot of a dam breaking, presumably nicked from a film, all of which are in black and white, which might explain a lot of why the transmitted episode also would be. Admiral Nelson is addressing the full council and is putting forward his plan to avert world disaster as two massive Arctic earthquakes have been predicted to occur in 11 days' time. And Nelson wants, predictably, to use a great big atom bomb to create a counterforce that would negate the effects of the earthquakes or some such nonsense. They did like to show off their nukes and what they could do with them back then, didn't they? There's a lot of dodgy science being bandied around here, and respected actor Richard Basehart does sometimes give the air of wondering just what the hell he's got himself involved with here, but manages to do so with a certain amount of dignity and conviction. Anyway, if they don't do this, huge tidal waves would sweep down from the north apparently and obliterate life as we know it. Britain is basically wiped off the map in this scenario, by the way. We learn that the forces of evil by which we must assume that he means those countries in that large landmass to the east, which is less likely to be troubled by those waves, are quite keen to let this happen and destabilise life as we know it. Equally. To avoid mass panic, none of us are going to be told anything or evacuated to safe places or anything, which is just the kind of thinking almost designed to make a generation grow up feeling paranoid about the government and the military and the sort of shenanigans they get up to behind closed doors. Anyway, despite some toing and froing, Operation Counterforce is approved because Admiral Nelson says that it will work and that they have to act, and luckily, I suppose, the plan gets recommended for approval. After the meeting breaks up, they then have a brief chat about what a damn shame it was about Captain Forgettable, who got killed, and we hear a little bit about his requisitioned replacement, a certain Lee Crane, who's painted as a by-the-book kind of a guy, which is about the most actual characterisation we'll ever get in this. Sadly, via a recorder placed in one of those exotic engraved gold cigarette boxes that you never see anymore, the forces of evil know all about what happened in this secret meeting, and in their headquarters, the kind of bald villain brandishing a long cigarette holder and wearing a velvet smoking jacket is planning further evil actions. Those early Bond films do have a lot to answer for, don't they? In the super-secret dockyard late at night, a sinister figure sneaks aboard the Sea View and into the moodily red-lit inner corridors of the submarine. But, phew, he's very quickly caught, and ha-ha! Despite all those sinister men in sinister headquarters, it's not a super-sneaky evil spy at all, but the new captain testing the security, and he's not all that impressed, despite the fact that they caught him. Some people are never pleased, are they? Still, this sets up a certain amount of edginess between him and the crew, which means that, as per the rules of such things, he needs to prove himself to be an okay guy before the episode is over. The crew at this point includes Henry Kulke playing Chief Curly Jones, who would only feature in the first season as he would die of a heart attack before the CV returned to full colour. His replacement would be Chief Sharky, played with a, a light and sweaty touch by Terry Becker for the rest of the run, and it is his chief that people remember more. As well as the eternally put-upon Kowalski, other regular crew members included the eternally cool Bob Dowdell as Chip Morton. I always liked Chip. Paul Trinker as Patterson. Arch Whiting as the ever-busy and well-named Sparks. 
Alan Hunt as Seaman Riley and Richard Bull as the ship's no-nonsense doctor. Other crewmen would come and go, but they were the main regulars in an unusually all-male and very waspish cast. We are also introduced at this point to the terse Dr Fred Wilson, played with a certain brusqueness by this week's special guest star, Eddie Albert, the best diver on the boat. And whilst the language is very clipped, this boys' club doesn't feature any women at all in this episode, though it wasn't an exclusive boys' club as there would be female guest stars, although like with other matters of diversity, there would be very few and far between. Anyway. Pretty soon the sub is at sea, and despite the crew and the ship both being considered expendable, Chip continues plotting courses and the action moves to that front observation deck set with those massive viewing windows, which remain one of the more memorable images associated with the series, and Nelson and Crane can share what passes for some matey, mutually respectful dialogue, which underscores how heroic they all are, and whilst they all try to smoke themselves to death in a strangely huge-seeming environment that probably could do without all that smoke hanging around, they decide not to tell the crew everything about this top-secret mission, as they don't want to be aboard a floating pressure cooker full of chaps worrying about silly stuff like families and whatnot, a notion that would resurface in Crimson Tide a couple of decades later. Night falls, and with the first proper shudder of the series, not a full-on rock and roll, like the kids would play in the school playground after watching this that the show became famous or notorious for, we get the next full-on action sequence which includes depth charges as they are attacked by an aircraft and the top-secret nature of the mission is immediately revealed, causing certain supporting artists to display a certain amount of panic. Also, the sonar mast gets lost, requiring a lot of the cast, including the less-than-sylph-like Curly Jones, to get into their rubber gear in a range of colours including orange, yellow and black, and head outside via an airlock tube and not the usual studio tank in the middle of the set because they didn't have one, for an encounter with a giant octopus. Truly, everything from the film is being included in this episode. Anyway, Captain Crane is molested by the octopus and saved by the heroic, if not modest, Doctor, who also retrieves that lost sonar mast, and they must surface to make repairs via some impressive model shots of the submarine underneath the polar ice field. However, before we can draw breath, the torpedoes are incoming and they have to call battle stations and make a run for it as another submarine is after them, albeit a submarine crewed by some of the stupidest villains in the evil world. So now we get some proper rocking and rolling as the torpedoes miss, but they are too close and following the surprisingly Flash Gordon-y orders of the evil Cabal, the other inferior submarine dives far too deep in pursuit of Seaview and basically blows up. The Seaview is, of course, the far superior vessel and survives. Huzzah! The Seaview is now free to surface and does so using that spectacular, if impractical, model shot of it erupting into a frozen sea at a 40 degree angle, and it is still a breathtakingly powerful image. Meanwhile, at evil headquarters, they turn to their remote-controlled drones to make another attack, and this is when the modern viewer has to consider two things. First, that the idea of remote-controlled drones has been around for more than half a century, and second, maybe too many little girls and boys grew up watching this sort of stuff and decided to make them into real weapons of mass destruction. Anyway, we're at the North Pole, which is nicely realised despite a few obvious backdrops, and the submarine looks great in the snowscapes. The remaining part of the episode involves trying to deliver the atom bomb, because military might can basically solve any problem, boys and girls. 
to the appointed spot and attack on his team in their snowcat, the first deadly earthquake actually happening for another prolonged rocking and rolling session from the cast, and a foolishly brave mission headed up by this stupendously brave Captain Crane, which succeeds but well beyond the nick of time, and yet despite knowing that they've got a limited amount of time to get away before Wilson nukes the Arctic, no doubt causing a certain amount of global warming in an instant, chaps, he hangs on anyway in the belief that they will succeed in their rescue attempt. And of course, huzzah, they do! And they even managed to launch a missile to take out that pesky drone in the process, although those pesky evils in their lounge lizardy base are determined to return. <laughs> Actually, in terms of building tension throughout this sequence, the episode does it surprisingly well. One thing Alan did well was build and pace a bit of sweaty tension, as anyone who's ever seen his The Towering Inferno could no doubt testify. Anyway... With a cry of brace yourselves and a crash dive, a whole load of rock and rolling, and feet upon feet of stock footage of the sea view being battered by chunks of undersea ice, the world, and happily, from a personal point of view, that includes tiny old Britain, is saved. And, over coffee and bickies in the observation deck, we learn that Captain Crane has been bunged out of the Navy to be made permanent captain of the sea view, and they will be battling evils just so long as there are evils to be battled, or until 1968, whichever is sooner which calls for a resounding celebratory fanfare, and the pilot episode is over, and almost as dead a cert for a full series as you might ever see. There is something about all of the Irwin Allen productions that have a heightened sense of artificiality about them, as well as a slightly formulaic and perhaps stagey quality that's difficult to define, but which becomes more apparent when compared with other shows made around the same time. That said, a lot of American television drama series made before the 1980s do have a similar unreality about them, even the most urban of them, but that might go some way towards explaining their appeal and the fond memories certain generations have of them. Many of these shows were made to be watched by families, and as families we sat down and watched them, and perhaps that explains the good, warm, nostalgic feelings they can evoke in us, even now. Certainly my own early exposure to the adventures aboard the Sea View created interest for me in all kinds of dramas set on board submarines, and led me to enjoy some of my very favourite films, The Hunt for Red October, Das Boot, Crimson Tide, and the like, as well as all those stiff upper-lipped war movies made in the 1950s, and as a legacy. That's not half bad for a bit of hokum made in the mid-1960s, is it? That was episode 48 of Round the Archives. Starring Lisa Parker, Andrew Trowbridge, Paul Chandler, Toppy Smelly and Martin Holmes. On the musical side, you heard Dan Tate and Paul Chandler. The script for Goodies Rule OK was by Graham Garden and Bill Oddie. And the producer was Jim Franklin. Oh, he's probably just trying to win a prize. He won't.
Anyway, now Paul and Toppy return to look at. Well, I think... <laughs> Sorry. And now Paul and Toppy return to look at. So I really can't put Twilight Zone. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Oh, I didn't understand that. Surrealism. Too hot. It's a load of rubbish. 